0: Section 17 of The Life of Richard Nash Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith. Edited by Peter Cunningham. A letter from Mr. Blank in Tunbridge to Lord Blank IN LONDON, FOUND AMONG THE PAPERS OF MR. NASH, AND PREPARED BY HIM FOR THE PRESS. MY LORD, WHAT I foresaw HAS ARRIVED. POOR JENNERS, AFTER LOSING ALL HIS FORTUNE, HAS SHOT HIMSELF THROUGH THE HEAD. HIS LOSSES TO BLAND WERE CONSIDERABLE, AND HIS PLAYING SOON AFTER WITH SPEDDING CONTRIBUTED TO HASTEN HIS RUIN. NO MAN WAS EVER MORE ENAMOURED OF PLAY, OR UNDERSTOOD IT LESS. At whatever game he ventured his money, he was most usually the dupe, and still foolishly attributed to his bad luck those misfortunes that entirely proceeded from his want of judgment. After finding that he had brought on himself irreparable indigence and contempt, his temper, formerly so sprightly, began to grow gloomy and unequal. He grew more fond of solitude, and more liable to take offence at supposed injuries in short for a week before he shot himself his friends were of opinion that he meditated some such horrid design he was found in his chamber fallen on the floor the bullet having glanced on the bone and lodged behind his right eye you remember my lord what a charming fellow this deluded man was once how benevolent just temperate and every way virtuous the only faults of his mind arose from motives of humanity HE WAS TOO EASY, CREDULOUS, AND GOOD-NATURED, AND UNABLE TO RESIST TEMPTATION WHEN RECOMMENDED BY THE VOICE OF FRIENDSHIP. THESE FOIBLES THE VICIOUS AND THE NEEDY SOON PERCEIVED, AND WHAT WAS AT FIRST A WEAKNESS THEY SOON PERVERTED INTO GUILT. HE BECAME A GAMESTER, AND CONTINUED THE INFAMOUS PROFESSION TILL HE COULD SUPPORT THE MISERIES IT BROUGHT WITH IT NO LONGER. I have often been not a little concerned to see the first introduction of a young man of fortune to the gaming-table, with what eagerness his company is courted by the whole fraternity of sharpers, how they find out his most latent wishes in order to make way to his affections by gratifying them, and continue to hang upon him with the meanest degree of condescension. The youthful dupe, no way suspecting, imagines himself surrounded by friends and gentlemen, and incapable of even suspecting that men of such seeming good sense and so genteel an appearance should deviate from the laws of honour walks into the snare, nor is he undeceived till schooled by the severity of experience. As I suppose no man would be a gamester unless he hoped to win, so I fancy it would be easy to reclaim him, if he was once effectually convinced that by continuing to play he must certainly lose. Permit me, my lord, to attempt this task, and to show that no young gentleman by a year's run of play, and in a mixed company, can possibly be a gainer. Let me suppose in the first place that the chances on both sides are equal, that there are no marked cards, no pinching, shuffling, nor hiding, let me suppose that the players also have no advantage of each other in point of judgment and still further let me grant that the party is only formed at home without going to the usual expensive places of resort frequented by gamesters even with all these circumstances in the young gamester's favour it is evident he cannot be a gainer with equal players after a year's continuance of any particular game it will be found that, whatever has been played for, the winnings on either side are very inconsiderable, and most commonly nothing at all. Here, then, is a year's anxiety, pain, jarring and suspense, and nothing gained. Were the parties to sit down and professedly play for nothing, they would contemn the proposal. They would call it trifling away time, and one of the most insipid amusements in nature. Yet, in fact, How do equal players differ? It is allowed that little or nothing can be gained. But much is lost. Our youth, our time, those moments that may be laid out in pleasure or improvement, are foolishly squandered away in tossing cards, fretting at ill-luck, or, even with a run of luck in our favour, fretting that our winnings are so small. I have now stated gaming in that point of view in which it is alone defensible as a commerce carried on with equal advantage and loss to either party, and it appears that the loss is great and the advantage but small. But let me suppose the players not to be equal, but the superiority of judgment in our own favour. A person who plays under this conviction, however, must give up all pretensions to the approbation of his own mind, and is guilty of as much injustice as the thief who robbed a blind man, because he knew he could not swear to his person. But, in fact, when I allowed the superiority of skill on the young beginner's side, I only granted an impossibility. Skill in gaming, like skill in making a watch, can only be acquired by long and painful industry. The most sagacious youth alive was never taught at once all the arts and all the niceties of gaming every passion must be schooled by long habit into caution and phlegm the very countenance must be taught proper discipline and he who would practise this art with success must practise on his own constitution all the severities of a martyr without any expectation of the reward it is evident therefore every beginner must be a dupe and can only be expected to learn his trade by losses disappointment and dishonour if a young gentleman therefore begins to game the commencements are sure to be to his disadvantage and all that he can promise himself is that the company he keeps though superior in skill are above taking advantage of his ignorance and unacquainted with any sinister arts to correct fortune but this however is but a poor hope at best and what is worse most frequently a false one in general I MIGHT ALMOST HAVE SAID ALWAYS, THOSE WHO LIVE BY GAMING ARE NOT BEHOLDEN TO CHANCE ALONE FOR THEIR SUPPORT, BUT TAKE EVERY ADVANTAGE WHICH THEY CAN PRACTICE WITHOUT DANGER OF DETECTION. I KNOW MANY ARE APT TO SAY, AND I HAVE ONCE SAID SO MYSELF, THAT AFTER I HAVE SHUFFLED THE CARDS IT IS NOT IN THE POWER OF A SHARPER TO PACK THEM, BUT AT PRESENT I CAN CONFIDENTLY ASSURE YOUR LORDSHIP THAT SUCH REASONERS ARE DECEIVED. I have seen men both in Paris, The Hague, and London, who, after three deals, could give whatever hands they pleased to all the company. However, the usual way with sharpers is to correct fortune thus, but once in a night, and to play in other respects without blunder or mistake, and a perseverance in this practice always balances the year in their favour. It is impossible to enumerate all the tricks and arts practised upon cards, few but have seen those bungling poor fellows, who go about at coffee-houses, perform their clumsy feats, and yet, indifferently as they are versed in the trade, they often deceive us. When such as these are possessed of so much art, what must not those be who have been bred up to gaming from their infancy, whose hands are not like those mentioned above, rendered callous by labour, who have continual practice in the trade of deceiving, and where the eye of the spectator is less upon its guard? Let the young beginner only reflect by what a variety of methods it is possible to cheat him, and perhaps it will check his confidence. His antagonists may act by signs and confederacy, and this he can never detect. They may cut to a particular card after three or four hands have gone about, either by having that card pinched or broader than the rest, or by having an exceeding fine wire thrust between the folds of the paper, and just peeping out at the edge or the cards may be chalked with particular marks which none but the sharper can understand or a new pack may be slipped in at a proper opportunity i have known myself in paris a fellow thus detected with a tin case containing two packs of cards concealed within his shirt sleeve and which by means of a spring threw the cards ready packed into his hands these and an hundred other arts may be practiced with impunity and escape detection the great error lies in imagining every fellow with a laced coat to be a gentleman the address and transient behaviour of a man of breeding are easily acquired and none are better qualified than gamesters in this respect at first their complaisance civility and apparent honour is pleasing but upon examination few of them will be found to have their minds sufficiently stored with any of the more refined accomplishments which truly characterise the man of breeding This will commonly serve as a criterion to distinguish them, though there are other marks which every young gentleman of fortune should be apprised of. A Sharper, when he plays, generally handles and deals the cards awkwardly like a bungler. He advances his bets by degrees, and keeps his antagonist in spirits by small advantages and alternate success at the beginning. To show all his force at once would but fright the bird he intends to decoy." he talks of honour and virtue and his being a gentleman and that he knows great men and mentions his coal-mines and his estate in the country he is totally divested of that masculine confidence which is the attendant of real fortune he turns yields assents smiles as he hopes will be most pleasing to his destined prey he is afraid of meeting a shabby acquaintance particularly if in better company As he grows richer, he wears finer clothes, and if ever he is seen in an undress, it is most probable he is without money, so that seeing a gamester growing finer each day is a certain symptom of his success. The young gentleman who plays with such men for considerable sums is sure to be undone, and yet we seldom see even the rook himself make a fortune. A life of gaming must necessarily be a life of extravagance, parties of this kind are formed in houses where the whole profits are consumed and while those who play mutually ruin each other they only who keep the house or the table acquire fortunes thus gaming may readily ruin a fortune but has seldom been found to retrieve it the wealth which has been acquired with industry and hazard and preserved for ages by prudence and foresight is swept away on a sudden and when a besieging sharper sits down before an estate, the property is often transferred in less time than the writings can be drawn to secure the possession. The neglect of business, and the extravagance of a mind which has been taught to covet precarious possession, brings on premature destruction. Though poverty may fetch a compass and go somewhat about, yet will it reach the gamester at last, and though his ruin be slow, yet it is certain." A thousand instances could be given of the fatal tendency of this passion, which first impoverishes the mind, and then perverts the understanding. Permit me to mention one, not caught from report or dressed up by fancy, but such as has actually fallen under my own observation, and of the truth of which I beg your lordship may rest satisfied. End of section 17